I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We come this morning to the transition point in the book of Romans, and it's marked by the word therefore in verse 1. Whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, it lets you know that the writer is basing what he's about to say on what he has already said. Now we've seen some other therefores in, in, this, in this book. In chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But neither is as comprehensive as this one. Because in chapter 12 and verse 1, the therefore is the hinge that swings open the door to the practical section of Romans. After 11 chapters of doctrine, we now have five chapters of practical exhortation. And that's really the pattern of Scripture. Doctrine is the foundation for practical living. After doctrine comes duty. After revelation comes responsibility. After principles comes practice. Paul tells us what to believe, and then he tells us how to behave. Now, some people like to rush to the practical sections and skip over the doctrine. And that makes for popular preaching, but it doesn't make for very good results. In keeping with March Madness, it would be like a basketball coach who doesn't spend any time recruiting, doesn't spend any time teaching or coaching. He just gives great pep talks before the game. It's like a coach who never taught me how to shoot free throws, but he gets with a cheerleader on the sideline and says, sink it, Danny, sink it. You see, he's not going to get very good results. And sometimes when you work with a basketball player, you have to teach them to stop doing what they were doing before and then teach them what's right. And that's what we've had in the book of Romans. Paul has shown us the worthlessness of works. He's shown us the helplessness of the law. You've got to stop doing those things. And then he's shown us the power of the gospel. He's shown us who we are and all that we have in Jesus Christ. He's shown us all of our resources up until this point. And now he says, it's time for action. It's time to get out there and play ball. And so in chapters 12 to 16, Paul gives the game plan. Five chapters of exhortation. And he's going to cover several aspects of practical Christian living and all kinds of relationships but what I like is the fact that he starts with a challenge. And it's a challenge to consecration. It's a challenge to total dedication to God. And we see it in the first two verses. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service and worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I want to tell you something from the outset this morning. If you don't get this, there's no reason to stick around for the rest of the book of Romans. If you don't come to grips and come to your knees in terms of Romans 12, 1 and 2, then the rest of the book is just a trivial pursuit. It's just an impossible dream. Because if you're going to live the Christ-like life, 
described in the remainder of this book, you're going to first have to come to the altar described in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You see, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is crucial. This is holy ground. This is the burning bush of the New Testament. This is where you take off your shoes and you meet with God. And so these two verses are two of the most important verses you'll ever encounter as a Christian. And so we're going to take some time going through them this morning. And I want to point out five things that I see in these verses. The motivation, the dedication, the insulation, the transformation, and the realization. First of all, the motivation. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes and ask yourself, how would I get other people to be consecrated to God? Would I command them? Would I demand them? Would I require them? Would I threaten them? No. What does Paul say? I urge you, or literally, I beg you. Moses commands... Paul urges. The law orders, love begs. God in the Old Testament says, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you. In the New Testament, he says, I've already blessed you. Now please, obey me. I'm reminded of what Paul says to Philemon in Philemon verses 8 and 9. He says, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. And that's Paul's posture here. Speaking for God, he says, I beg you. And isn't that just like our God? He gives himself for us, and then he begs us to give ourselves to him. Now, on what basis does Paul beg us? Does he beg us on the basis of the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the holiness of God? No. He turns our attention to the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? Well, the mercies of God are all the things that Paul has been describing in these first 11 chapters. How that we were lost, helpless sinners how that we were ungodly and rebellious and hopeless, how that we weren't just indifferent toward God, we were enemies of God. In fact, in chapter 3, he portrays us as standing guilty and condemned before a righteous God waiting for the death penalty that I deserve. But God intervened, and God sent His Son to die in my place to pay the penalty that I deserved. And my sins were removed. I have been declared righteous. I am in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. I no longer am under law. I am now under grace. I now have God the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I have absolutely no condemnation and no separation. And I look forward to certain glory. Now that is mercy. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That's the mercy of God. 
And that's the motivation for consecration. Paul begs us on the basis of the mercies of God. Now let me say something else. You will not begin to understand these two verses until you understand mercy. And you will not begin to understand mercy until you begin to understand how undeserving you really are. You know, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus was eating with a Pharisee. And while he was having the meal, a, a woman came in. The Bible calls her a sinner. She was probably a prostitute. She was somebody identified as a sinner in the community. She came in and came to Jesus' feet and began to weep on Jesus' feet. And the tears fell down on his feet. And she took her hair and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she took a vial of perfume and she anointed his feet with that perfume. And all the while, the Bible tells us that Pharisee was sitting there thinking, if this man was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is and he would throw her out of my house. And knowing what he was thinking, Jesus took that opportunity to tell a story. He said a money lender had two debtors. One owed him $50,000. The other owed him 5000 Neither was able to pay and so he graciously forgave them both. And then Jesus asked, which one of those debtors do you think will love him more? And the Pharisee says, well, I suppose it's the one that he forgave more. And Jesus said, you're right. And then he said, I came to your house and you didn't even give me a basin of water to wash my feet. She has washed them with her tears. You didn't even give me the formal kiss of the Middle East. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with perfume. And then Jesus lays down a principle. He says, He who is forgiven little, loves little. And he who is forgiven much, loves much. So let me ask you this morning, how much have you been forgiven? Well, you have been forgiven much because you have been forgiven all and if you would only come to realize that it would motivate you to total dedication you see that's the motivation the mercies of God and then the second aspect I want you to see is the dedication what is it that Paul is begging us to do well he says I beg you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice now, that's dedication. And I want to just point out six things about this dedication. Number one, it's personal. Notice verse one. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. See, this, this verse is not written to unbelievers. This, this verse is not written for somebody else. If you're a Christian here this morning, this verse is written to you. This is a message for you. Paul is begging you and Paul is begging me. This is personal. Secondly, it's voluntary. He uses that word present. And that's a temple term that he's using there. In the Old Testament, when a man came to the temple, he presented his gifts. He presented his offerings. He presented his sacrifice to the Lord. 
And in the same way, Paul says, we are to present ourselves to God. We're to do it willingly, and we're to do it freely. It's voluntary. And then thirdly, I want you to notice that it's, it's practical. He says, I want you to present what? Your bodies. You say, well, Lord, surely you don't want this body. I mean, let, let me give you anything but my body. Th- this body has B.O. Th- this body snores. This body has a bad heart. This body has a dirty mind. You you don't want this body. Let me give you my spirit. Let me give you my soul. Let me give you my heart. But what does Paul say? Present your bodies. You see, that's practical. What if everyone here this morning except you said, you know, I'm not coming to church today, but I'll be there in spirit. What kind of fellowship would you be having? What if this group of college students from Denton said, uh, we know we're going to come and work on Denise's house in spirit this week. What kind of service would that be? See, Paul says, I want you to present your bodies because that's practical. It's in the body that the entire expression of our lives is made. It's in the body that we struggle with those desires and temptations and appetites and laziness and selfishness. You see, God wants your body because He knows if He gets your body, He gets all of you. That's practical. And then fourthly, I want you to notice that it's total. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, it doesn't get any more total than a sacrifice. When a man in the Old Testament presented a sacrifice, he gave it all. And that's what God is asking from you and me. And he won't settle for less. He won't settle for 85%. He won't settle for an arm and a leg. We don't sing... I surrender some. You see, it's a total commitment. But I want you to notice that this is a paradoxical statement. A living sacrifice. And you couldn't have a living sacrifice because sacrifices die. But the paradox is that when I present my body as a sacrifice to the Lord... I live. In Romans 6.11, he said, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. See, that's the beauty of giving to God. What appears to be slavery actually turns out to be freedom. What appears to be death actually turns out to be life. And what kind of life is this? This is resurrection life. And resurrection life only follows death. You see, you will only experience the kind of life he's talking about here after you sacrifice yourself. It's total commitment. 
And many preachers have pointed out that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. I can present my body as a living sacrifice on Sunday, and on Monday I can crawl off the altar. I can stand here on Sunday and sing Onward Christian Soldiers, and then on Monday I can go AWOL. And that's why when Jesus talked about this same principle, he said, I want you to take up your cross daily. It's a daily activity. And Paul is telling us here, it's a total commitment. Fifth thing I want you to see is that it's pleasing. He says, it's holy and acceptable to God. Now, sacrifices in the Old Testament were well screened. They had to be spotless and unblemished with no disease and no faults. And that's what's so amazing to me here. I can take this body that I know has committed many, many, many sins in the past and still does in the present, and I present it to the Lord, and He says what? It's holy. It's holy. That's not my doing. That's God's doing through Jesus Christ. But not only does He say it's holy, He says... It's acceptable. And that's a word that means well-pleasing. When Jesus offered himself as an offering and a sacrifice, Ephesians 5.2 says it was a fragrant aroma to God. And the same can be said about you and me. It's more than just acceptable. It's well-pleasing to God. When you give your life to him, it's a fragrant aroma to the Lord. When you commit yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice, you make God happy. And then the sixth thing I want you to notice here is that it's reasonable. My Bible says it's your spiritual service of worship. You see, anytime you make a commitment of your life to God, you're worshiping. People say with me, well, how do I worship God? You worship God by giving Him your time, your praise, your money, your talents, your energy. When you give your life to Him, that is the ultimate act of worship. But you know, there's an adjective in this phrase, and it's a Greek word from which we get our English word logical. And so what he's saying here is, it's a logical expression of worship. And I would ask you, what is more logical than doing this? What is more reasonable than doing this? Christ gave his life for me. It only makes sense that I would give my life back to him. You see, when you present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, it's the most reasonable thing that you will ever do. Third aspect is insulation. How does a living sacrifice live? Well, verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world. That phrase, this world, is actually literally this age. And he's talking about the whole philosophy and morals and standards and principles and amusements of this world system that is devoid of God and controlled by Satan. Galatians 1.4 says Christ died to deliver us from this present evil age. Ephesians 2.2 says we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 says this whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. 
That's this world. And he calls it this world because it's in contrast to the world to come, which is the kingdom in which Christ will reign. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. You know, a lot of us are like jello. We take whatever shape of mold we're in. If we're in the world, we take the shape of the world. If we're in the church, we take the shape of the church. Paul says don't be conformed. I love Philip's paraphrase here because he really captures the passive verb in the Greek. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be a chameleon. Don't change colors in every environment that you're in. Don't adjust to your surroundings. Don't conform to this world. Now the question we all have is, how do I relate to a lost world without conforming to a lost world? How do I draw that line between relating to this lost world and yet not conforming to this lost world? Well, let me put it this way, and it might help you. Christian, a Christian's relationship to the world is not isolation, and it's not imitation. It is insulation. You see, Christians go to one of two extremes when it comes to this issue. One is isolation. That's when I don't have anything to do with the world. When I say, well, I, I just won't do it. I don't go to movies. I don't watch TV. I, I don't follow sports. I don't know what's going on in the world. I just isolate. I just take myself away from the world. And I really don't know any unbelievers. And then when I do meet them, they think I'm kind of weird because we have nothing in common. That's isolation. But see, you can't have isolation because if you have isolation, then you're not fulfilling what Jesus has called us to do, and that is to reach this lost world. So the one extreme is isolation. The other extreme is imitation, and that's when I do whatever the world does to fit in. And that's when I just go along with the flow, and I adopt their values and their standards and their lifestyle, and pretty soon you can't tell the difference between me and an unbeliever. And that's what Paul is warning us about here. And so he's saying, you're not to have isolation where you go to a monastery. You're not to have imitation where you're an undercover Christian. You look like everybody else in the world. What you're to have is insulation. And that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he said that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Let me illustrate it this way. I love seafood. I mean, you want to make me happy, get me some fresh seafood. That's why I love to go to the coast, because I love to have seafood that was swimming in the morning. I want to eat it at night. But you know what's interesting to me? When, I, when you cook uh, shrimp or sea bass or something, you would expect it to be salty, wouldn't you? You get it, it's been in the ocean all its life. You bring it out, you know what you have to do? You have to put salt on it. That tells me something. If God can keep a fish in the ocean its whole life and insulate it from the salt, then he can keep you and me in the world and keep us pure. You see, that's what God wants to do. Not isolation to the extreme, not imitation to the extreme. He wants us in the world, but insulated from the world. Do not conform to this world. And then the fourth aspect is transformation. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed.
transformed. Don't be conformed, be changed. And that word transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's the word used of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was changed. And so he's not talking here about some cosmetic change. He's talking about a radical change from one nature and lifestyle to another. Metamorphosis. That's when a tadpole becomes a frog. That's when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. You know, psychologists say that your basic personality is set by the age of three or four. And some of us grab onto that truth and we, we go around saying, well, I've always been this way and this is just the way I am. And maybe some of you have been mistreated and in the past you've got bad experiences and bad memories and painful scars. And some of us are going along limping through life because of things that have happened in our past. Well, I want you to mark this verse because it tells us that God is in the business of metamorphosis. He can change you from a lowly caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. He can make you free. He can make you fly. But to do that, the cocoon has to go. See, the cocoon is the old ways and the old habits and the old patterns. Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. I think we've got too many spiritual caterpillars crawling around today. I think we've got too many spiritual larvae and not enough butterflies. You say, well, how do I become a butterfly? How do I get transformed? Well, notice what he says in verse 2. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 34 that we saw last week, Paul asked the question, which is really a quote from Isaiah 40, Who has known the mind of the Lord? And the answer is obviously no one. But I find it interesting that Paul quotes that same question in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And this is the answer he gives. We have the mind of Christ. You see, God has placed inside of me a new mind, and it's His mind. It's the mind of Christ. The only problem is, I've still got this old brain and these memories and these thought patterns. So this verse tells me there has to be a renewal that takes place. So don't miss this. The key to changing your life is to change the way you think. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So you say, well, then how do I change the way I think? Well, Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is, By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, the way to change your life is to reprogram your mind with the word of God. The more you fill your mind with God's word, the more it transforms your life. So the simple question is, where are you getting your mental input from? 
Let's say I asked you if I could come over to your house and sit in your living room and have you gather all your family around. And I'm going to tell you graphic stories about adultery and rape and violence. And I'm going to give you all the juicy details. And I'm going to tell them in such a way as to promote infidelity, homosexuality, and abortion. Would you welcome me over? No. Then my question is, why do you allow your boob tube to do that night after night after night? And what does it take for you to finally blush enough to change the channel? And in contrast to the hours that you may spend watching that kind of thing, how much time a week do you allow the Word of God to reprogram your mind? Now, Jesus made a very revealing statement in Luke 16, 15. He said, That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That which men highly esteem, God finds detestable. So you can be pretty sure that whatever the popular consensus opinion of man is, God is not applauding. You see, if we're going to be, if we're going to stop being conformed and start being transformed, we need God's input. We need to get His perspective. You want a little test to see whether you've got God's perspective? Remember when, in, in, in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You got some spiritual input. You got God's mind on this issue. And then he says, now, wait a minute, boys, don't tell anybody, because I want to explain to you what kind of Messiah I am. I'm not the kind of Messiah you're expecting. I'm not a Messiah that's going right to the throne. I'm a Messiah who's going to the cross. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to give my life sacrificially for the world. Remember what Peter did when he heard that? Peter, who just had this great input from God? The Bible says he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Now there's the division. What is man's interest? Man's interest is self-exaltation. Man's interest is to be self-centered. What is God's interest? God's interest is self-sacrifice. So when my mind is set on man's interest and I'm self-centered, I'll be conformed to this world. When my mind is set on God's interest, self-sacrifice, I will be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed, he told us earlier in chapter 8, to the image of Jesus Christ. And what is the image of Jesus Christ? He is the Lamb of God who gave his life for the world. So a changed life begins with a changed mind. And then fifth and finally, I want us to see the realization at the end of verse 2. He says, In order that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there are a lot of people today searching for the will of God. You ask them what they're doing, they're saying, I'm trying to discover what God's will is. 
I see in this verse that the will of God is not so much something that you find. It's something that you prove. You prove the will of God by living it out in your life. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, Walk as children of light, proving what is pleasing to the Lord. You say, well, if the will of God is something that I prove in my life, then I, you know, how do I know I'm doing God's will? Well, you'll know you're doing God's will because you're not doing your will. See, the thing about a living sacrifice is that a living sacrifice doesn't have its own will. I die to my will so that God might live his will through my life. You see, when you present yourself totally to God as a living sacrifice and you are being renewed in your mind, then you will see God's will lived out in you. Now, there are two truths I don't want you to miss here. Number one, God has a plan for your life. God has a will for you. But number two, only when you surrender yourself to Him and reject conformity to this world will you experience that will. And then you know what we find when we surrender ourselves unconditionally to God? He says at the end of verse 2, it is good and acceptable and perfect. It is good, I like it. It is acceptable, it fits, it's custom made for me. And it's perfect, it fulfills the desire of my heart. See, that's the realization of consecration. It's the realization that I am right where I want to be. And that's a paradox. That's the paradox Jesus was talking about when he says you have to lose your life to find it. Now I want to close this morning where Paul started with the words, I urge you. I want to beg you this morning. I only find Paul begging people two times in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he's begging unbelievers to be reconciled to God. And then here in Romans 12.1, he's begging believers to be consecrated to God. See, I can't command you and I can't force you and I can't decide for you, but I can beg you to present your body to God as a living sacrifice and to stop being conformed to this world that is passing away and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll prove what the will of God is. You see, in light of God's mercy, there is no more reasonable thing for you to do. And the paradox I can offer you is that as a living sacrifice, It will be good and acceptable and perfect. This is just what you were created to be. It's a surrender into victory. It's a sacrifice into life. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. And I'm going to invite you, I'm going to beg you this morning to present your body. 
fact, I'm going to ask you this morning to come forward and make that a public commitment. You say, well, Dan, I can make that commitment right here in my pew. I can make that in the privateness of my heart. Well, I think that's why Paul says he wants you to present your bodies. And I'm going to give you that opportunity today. I'm going to ask you to come down. You can call this the altar. You can kneel in the aisles if you like. We're going to sing. What are we going to sing? Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And I'm going to invite you to do that. Maybe you want to take your wife by the hand today and come and say, we're going to bow down. We're going to give our lives afresh to the Lord today. You come, you can bow down here, go back to your seat. Nobody's going to talk to you. If you have a need, you come up to the one of the pastors at the front. And if you were baptized today, we're going to ask you to come forward as we sing together as well. Let's make this your time. Bye.